welcome back. How's it going out there in LA? It's not bad. You know, I mean, we had this, we had our first tropical storm slash hurricane warning since the first half of the 20th century. Things are a little wet and wild out here. Yeah, I know. I feel like it's uh, the whole world's upside down. Huh? It's hurricane season. Here I am. I'm in New Orleans and I'm checking on you in LA. <laughs> I know. I think uh, I think for those of us who doubted that the natural world was getting a little bit crazy the last few years have been a serious wake-up call. But welcome back to season two of Half-Baked Deep Fry. It's great to be here with our colleague and friend and homie, uh, Alton. Yeah, definitely. And Alden, of course. And Alden. Have, I feel like we have so much to talk about. I feel like so much has happened, has gone down since the last time we were here. Uh, it's a, a new administration, a new world. We're quote-unquote post-COVID. Even yeah, though the COVID hearing, quarantine, COVID summer camp. Hearing possibly that, I don't know, there's rumors that COVID's coming back. But I don't know. I, I think it was always here, so I don't think anything. I think changed. COVID might be our friend that never leaves. Yeah, I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think anything's going to change too much, to be honest. I think our great success is that maybe we learn to live with the virus. I mean, I think one of the things that was surprising about the way the U.S. dealt with COVID is, and maybe it shouldn't have been surprising for those of us who really know U.S. politics, is that the U.S. is incredibly okay with large amounts of death and dying. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think also we we did this thing where we decided that we were able to shift responsibility from being a public health responsibility into being an individual responsibility. It was kind of one of their biggest tricks, right? They were basically like, hey, look, we've made this vaccine available. It's, it's everywhere. You can have it for free, it's, you know, you know, mostly free. Yeah, ish, correct, ish. And if you don't take it, like if you die, it's because you didn't take it. Now, we know that's not true. And there might be some other... You know, I got shot three times, just to be clear. It's not like I'm an anti-vaxxer. But there might be some other side effects that we didn't note that we, we might have silenced and expedited the application of the vaccine in order to implement, you know, our, our strategy, which I would say was largely successful. I'm not saying it wasn't successful, but I think there definitely were a few shortcuts taken to, to get there. Yeah, and I think your point is, I mean, the right point, right? I mean, one of the things that it seems like we did in the U.S., and this is something that I think is a hallmark of U.S. politics, the way we handle so many of our contentious situations, which we'll talk about, you know, as the season goes on, is we shift things that should be collective issues into personal issues. Yep. And so the vaccine became something of personal choice, right? You could take the vaccine, you could not take the vaccine, but it's your personal responsibility to stay safe. Even though we know that there's a lot of larger public health issues. Like some people can't take the vaccine. I have a very close friend who had a horrible, you know, allergic reaction to it. There's underlying conditions that aren't evenly distributed that make certain people more or less vulnerable to the pan to the to the virus. Yeah, so, and and certain communities <laughs> more or less vulnerable to the virus as an extension. That in some of these conditions are environmental or result from environmental conditions, as opposed to just being particularly, you know, endemic to the populations for other reasons. It's complicated, but I think it was, as you said, unsurprising. If you look at it from a bird's eye view, we'll see. I don't think it's going to end up being something that gets literally litigated a lot more and discussed more, but I think it's certainly going to be an election issue. So you think COVID will stay as an election issue? You don't think that? Uh, I think the vaccine. The funny thing is, I don't think anyone's going to want to talk about COVID. I mean, <laughs> it's funny. We, we said we weren't going to get into this, but I guess we can a little bit. I guess, you know, I don't think, if you saw recent polls, they said if you talked about lockdowns, 70% of Republican voters opposed them. But then if you call them the Trump lockdowns, then they flipped their opinion on it. And so I think 
it's going to be a conversation more about the vaccine than about COVID per se. And each side's going to so try to. I think it's s- going to be about the measures that we were taken to combat the the virus. Like people accept the virus as a naturally occurring event. What people don't accept as naturally occurring are the governmental responses. Yeah, I think most people are going to accept the virus as a naturally occurring event. I think there is that small group that's going to buy the propaganda that's U.S. <laughs> created COVID in the lab with the Chinese and. Apparently now it's with the Chinese in Ukraine, which is like a whole nother. It's like too many things they're putting together in one conspiracy for me, to be honest. But it's like it's too much. So you think but, all the conspiracies are just merging? Yeah, First exactly. It Chinese, it's a one mega it was the Americans. Now maybe it's the Chinese and American deep state. Correct. And they were storing it in Russia. So that's why they, I don't know. It's, 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 I don't think that's the case. I mean, I agree. I, I think I think rational minds, you know, agree that this was a naturally occurring pandemic that could happen again. But we don't agree at all on what to do next time, Mm. which is a little troubling, right? I think that's what's really scary, is that in some ways, as devastating as COVID-19 was and the millions of deaths around the world, it's unclear that we really learned the right lessons from the COVID experience, right? It's unclear that we're actually prepared for, you know, the, the very real possibility that this could happen again and that for those of us who aren't climate change deniers, for those of us who accept climate change, the real possibility that this could happen with an increased frequency, it's unclear that after this three-year experience, either the United States or governments around the world have really come up with a successful strategy for how to deal with this again. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And there's an increasing divergence among the major powers on how to deal with it. And I think each side might take their own lessons is the problem, right? I think a lot of people here are saying, well, look, Particularly, you know, this admin will say, look, look what we did. You know, we have the greatest recovery since the Great Depression. And this was the correct approach. And deaths have been, sure, mostly flat since then. Like, they haven't increased. Are they numerous? Yes, they're still numerous. But they haven't increased. And this was the the best we could do. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think you're right. I mean, I don't know if you noticed that piece. We sent around from Adam Tooze, right? And he was saying that, you know, a lot of people are looking at China, for instance, right now and saying, this is a huge Chinese slowdown. There's a collapse of their developmental model after 40 years, that they totally mishandled the last year, year and a half of COVID lockdowns, that they mishandled stimulus coming out of the economy. But in some ways, what's really interesting is that it's an inverse of the way in which people thought about the way China handled COVID in the beginning. In the very first year or two, everyone was like, wow, the Chinese and their ability to do systematic lockdowns is the wave of the future. People were like, authoritarian states are the only states that know how to deal with these kind of huge environmental climate change challenges. The United States doesn't know what what to do. But now the roles seem to have reversed, where we're kind of like, the U.S. had lax lockdowns, local divergence, but we had this scientific breakthrough. And then we did massive personalized stimulus. And so I think like what you're saying is true. What's going to be really scary is that it seems like different states have learned completely different lessons. It's really unclear that anyone around the world tackled the question of COVID-19 really successfully. And we don't understand why certain solutions work. And this is to say nothing about Africa or the Middle East or Southeast, South Asia or Latin America, which in some ways didn't have, weren't perceived to have been as affected by COVID-19. But will that stay true next time? There was no attempt to give them vaccines. Right. You could even say it, put it the other way. There was an attempt to not give them vaccines. We did 
took aggressive actions such as patenting the vaccine, preventing them from being distributed to Africa, preventing them from producing their own. Yeah, I mean, the US that, took- that very strong capitalistic model came into play, even in that circumstance. It wouldn't allow for these countries to protect their populations. It would just this open, like we, we had an open source. Remember, I think it was a lab at Stanford, was it, that leaked it? Leaked how to oh, make yeah. the mRNA vaccine, the recipe? Yeah, we, um, had the open, we had the open source, and then we had the Oxford one that was supposed to work with the UN. Certain Western powers took deliberate actions to protect their patent rights and their copyrights. Not to let generics be manufactured in South Asia, not to allow African states to develop their own mRNA factories and labs to develop, to manufacture the vaccine, not to share it with the Chinese. We seem to take a certain delight in the idea that the Chinese vaccines weren't as good as ours. Oh, definitely. The Chinese and the Russian vaccines, we were like, oh, they're, they're trash compared to our vaccines. It's even good American ingenuity. We, we came up with a technological solution to our problem. That's, that's the 20th century American way brought into the 21st century. And I guess it's, in some ways it was a, a kind of, it wasn't a very hopeful precursor to this question of whether or not we can do cooperation in the face of planetary threats, right? It seemed like we reverted back to, like you're saying, our 20th century models of national innovation and the idea that, you know, we're always able to find technological solutions to mega complex problems. Well, I think it's also, we prefer technological solutions to social solutions. America has a somewhat delicate social order that we like to ignore and not bring too much attention to, I'd argue. And so I think things that try to disturb it, I mean, look at one of our biggest disagreements during COVID was whether or not to use freezing place. How much should people be compensated from the government, you know, during these times? Yeah, I think it's always one of the challenges, right? I mean, I guess maybe I, and I, I don't always assume that I'm as, you know, capitalist or whatever as I might be, but you really called me out on this one. I mean, I was kind of assuming that the government should try to maintain the social structure without changing it during the COVID emergency. And I think people like you are much more open to the idea that this is a chance to deal with some real structural inequality. Well, it's not even that. I don't even... Think about it. That's the funny part. I'm not even thinking about it from the lens of like, hey, we should take active stance to deal with structural inequality. My point is that the government's responsibility to the individual, and this is where we also might say disagree, is based upon the citizenship pact. So I think the government owes each citizen the same amount. I don't think because someone has more money, they should get a bigger amount of larger amount of money from the government in order to ultimately satisfy the creditors, right? Because that's who's going to get this money anyway. That's what we're doing this. So for me, I have a bigger problem with the fact that there's a, an unequal amount of money being dispersed to citizens who I think have the same amount of right to the same amount of value from the government. I had a huge problem with PPP, all of that stuff, for these reasons. No, I mean, I think you're right. And I think this is one of the critiques maybe even going back uh, to the Obama period, right, when people were really upset with the idea that after the 2008 crisis, we bailed out the banks, we bailed out the creditors, but we didn't really provide a kind of citizen's benefit to each citizen. And maybe, you know, and there's an idea that there's a, been a wellspring of anger that has built over these last 10 years, 13 years, that in some ways fueled a lot of the pol- political dynamics that we're facing right now. But I think you're right. I mean, I think in some ways... One of the hallmarks of the COVID period is going to be that the U.S. government gave, you know, massive stimulus first under Trump and then continue under Biden to the American people. I mean, what do you think the political ramifications of that are? 
like what actually, you know, the U.S. government did step in. In some ways, it was one of the larger interventions undertaken, at least in recent memory. Oh, certainly. But it, it, it shows very specifically who was getting the money. We know it was mostly wealthy Americans that got most of this money. So I don't know. I think it didn't really address any inequalities. I think it exacerbated them, if anything. Mm. And I think that's becoming one of the challenges, because I think in some ways the lesson that was learned, and maybe this is a different topic, but I wonder if it was during the COVID experiment and this idea that the government could pick winners and losers, could really directly intervene. And I don't know, maybe we and you have a slight disagreement about this, whether or not the Trump era, and particularly the outbreak of COVID, sort of marked the end of neoliberalism as we knew it. And we moved into something new, a kind of industrial policy, a kind of idea that the government, you know, can take a much firmer hand. And I mean, I think initially the Biden administration acknowledged that there's all sorts of inequalities that needed to be adjusted. Remember when they tried to give COVID vaccines first to uh, minority communities, they tried to choose which uh, branches of CVS would get certain numbers of vaccines. But then you had that comical situation. I mean, I don't know if it's comical or tragic, but of all these like SUVs and suburban residents showing up in inner city CVSs around the block uh, trying to get the vaccine. So, I mean, there were some attempts to sort of engine, socially engineer this situation, but they don't seem to have really addressed the problems or satisfactorily addressed the problem. Yeah, there's a few, few things there, I guess. I don't know if I'd say neoliberalism is dead. I think it's still alive and well in both parties. I think maybe the, the, the point has been, I don't know, subsumed and, and, and converted into something else by both parties. That's, that's diverging. Both parties are now nationalistic. I think that's safe to say. One of the hallmarks of neoliberalism was always some sort of globalism, one argue. Mm. Yeah, do you think globalism is dead? Yeah, I mean, we have some big elections coming up, right? I think the support for it is different era, right? Like, what is what is global? I think maybe we're, we're choosing a smaller globe for whatever reason. Mm. I'm very confused by a lot of the actions being taken by this administration. I, I thought we had a pretty good status quo. If you want to hear my perspective, I, like I thought the U.S. was in the driver's seat. I thought we had some pretty good partnerships. We had one of the longest eras of European peace, as they say. For But it, it seems like we've decided that, that we didn't like that status quo and we needed to disturb it for further, I assume, American prosperity. But it's taken a, a decidedly nationalistic turn. And we've also decided that for some reason we it's not expansive. So we're not trying to invest as much as you'd think in, say, the African and South American markets, which to me seem ripe for investment and growth. But for whatever reason, we don't seem very interested in, in, in making major inroads there. I agree with you. And I'm, I think that second point, that last point, is one of the things that really confuses me. But I, I have to agree. I mean, I've been in a number of forums with people who are considered to be leading foreign policy experts, uh, Democrats, people you know associated with the Biden administration. And one of the things that sadly I feel like uh, continuity between the Biden and Trump administration is their disregard for Africa. And it's puzzling, particularly at the moment, right? I mean, prior to, prior to the end of the Cold War, Africa was really important to the global economy and continues to be pretty important, but was really important during the Cold War era for, as a supplier of the raw materials that allowed us 
to avoid the raw material supplies and in Eurasia under the Soviet Union. And now that we're you know putting all these sanctions on on Russia, you would think that there would be this massive turn to become closer to African states to try to renew investment there. And also, African states have an incredibly growing population, right? And so if we're thinking that there's going to be a long-term structural slowdown in places like China, where is the growth going to come from? There's also a migration crisis in places like Europe. And so how are you going to uh, employ this huge, young population? And we'll talk about this a little bit later in the thing, but Niger just, for instance, had a coup. Niger has one of the youngest populations in the world, and it has like 70 million people. Yeah. And so what yeah, do you think we're going to do? He's big as the UK, essentially. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for most Americans, it's not even a real place, right? They, they, they couldn't be bothered to think about where Niger is. And so I don't know what the American imagination is. But just going back to your point about the idea that it's not that neoliberalism is over or globalization is over. There was this, there's this historian at, at Harvard named Jamie Martin, does some really interesting work, posted a thread on Twitter. I'll just like maybe go through some of this thread, but it's, I think it's really interesting in thinking about what is happening with globalization. And he's looking, his thesis is that we're returning to a period like, like the interwar period or the period before World War I. Um, in which we're seeing a kind of real, it's not that we're seeing deglobalization, right? You know, we're not really seeing a reduction in trade with East Asia, for instance, a reduction of trade in the global oil markets. What we're, he says what we're seeing is a kind of return of economic nationalism, like you were saying. And we're seeing this weird mix of economic nationalism and a continued reliance on global interdependence. And he calls it strained interdependence. And he says one of the hallmarks of this, and I think we're beginning to see this all around the world, one of the hallmarks of this strained interdependence is a global cost of living crisis. And so he expects that we should see more and more uprisings and labor actions across the world, much like you, we did in the period from 1916 to 1920 in places like Egypt, India, Iraq, Japan, the Caribbean, West, West Africa, etc. And we're starting to see this, right? We've seen coups all across West Africa. Uh, we've seen coups happening everywhere. We've seen coups and major protests happen from Senegal, Burkina Faso, Niger, Mali. Sudan is in a kind of civil war. Libya is in crisis. The cost of living crisis in Egypt has returned once again. I was watching the South African politician, Julius Malima, and he was shouting, kill the Boers. And you're like, oh man, we're back into this, you know, real period of instability. Yeah, like 30,000 people. I saw that. That was... Yeah. It was something. Uh, it is crazy. And so I, I don't know if that's like one of the things that we're, we're, we are seeing again, right? I mean, we're seeing this really uncomfortable mixing of economic nationalism with, with an inability to replace the neoliberal order. So it's not like it's went away. It's just we're putting increased strain on it. It's causing all these crises, like this, this anxiety that maybe is a hallmark of our moment. I don't know. I mean, I feel like Americans are very anxious at the moment. Well, I think there's a, like a few things to, to address. The problems, right, when you go through this nationalistic transition, especially now, it's like worse than it was. You were basically turning back the clock about literally a hundred years. Like we're talking yeah. like almost exactly a hundred years ago is like when this happened before. <laughs> but like conditions have only gotten more global, right? And more interdependent. Mm -hmm. And so when you do this thing where you try to reshore and nationalize all of these highly interdependent and delicate industries, it's inefficient, period. Mm -hmm. It's just inefficient. It's inherently inflationary in multiple ways. And then each actor 
has to, you know, do what's best for them. So they try to start making profit in ways they can, which starts causing inefficient, further inefficiencies. And so you get each group starts, you know, I don't know, hoarding wheat or gold or whatever it is that you have, or for us chips, for whatever reason, we decide we're going to make these things much more expensive for our opponents. And it, it just makes the entire market I mean, wonky, whack. Mm. I think that's one of the big things. And then to address the, the issue of, of what's happening, at least here, I think, well, we're going to see what labor is. We have a distribution problem, even though we've, we have a really weird economy right now, right? Where we, we've recovered most of our GDP. A lot of this is at pre-COVID levels, but we're also doing this weird thing where the Fed's squeezing people's savings. Whose savings? Who's getting this profit from the new economy and who's taking these big losses? When you look at it in some, right, as marginal stats, it might all add up. But if you look at the effects on everyday people, it's it seems kind of harsh. They're saying the average person is paying about, American is paying about $750 more per month for their basic basket of goods. So they say inflation is done, but maybe it's just here to stay. Yeah, I mean, when they say inflation is done, it's also, you know, what exactly are they saying? They're not saying that there's going to be, they're saying that there's going to be a, a you know, an end to the growth in prices. But correct. they're not Slow saying that the prices are going to go back. Yeah, correct. They're not saying we've returned to, to pre-COVID prices or COVID pricing. They're saying that crazy growth you were seeing should should slow down now. We're at, we're at the natural price now, right? That's that's kind of the argument. But you're right. I mean, what does it mean for individuals if everything is $750 a month more expensive? How many Americans can really front that bill? And there have been wage gains, but the wage gains seem to be outpaced by this incredibly large rise in, in prices. And we're not sure that it's over. As much as people in this administration want to say it's over, we can't be sure that it's really over. Yeah, or if this is just phase one, because a lot of these effects aren't immediate. They take mm-hmm. time to, to set in. Yeah, I mean, this seems like it could just be phase one. And and we're seeing, as you're saying, right, a lot of these things aren't simple to reshore. So even in things like in Arizona, where, you know, I guess one of the big successes that Biden is going to uh, run on is his chips bill. This huge, you know, this $50 billion that was passed in order to reshore the chip supply chain to the United States. But what we've seen is that, you, one, you, it's not clear that you can actually reshore the chip supply chain. And two, in order to do it, it's not clear that you can just use American workers in order to re-put together, reassemble uh, the supply chain. So even if you build new fabs in places like Arizona, this new political issue has arisen, which is whether or not you need to import Taiwanese and other East Asian workers to work in the fab. And that's creating, you know, that seems to run up against this other red line or this other political issue, which is there's increased anger in the United States about immigration. Yeah, that's an increasing problem. Um, I'm kind of surprised that they thought they were going to be able to get that that fab facility up in Arizona without importing a lot of foreign labor. There just wasn't enough training headway, right? There wasn't enough time to train that many workers. And so I guess that's the other part that needs to be addressed here is, is, is the education column. And how we plan on if we're going to reshore all of these industries, like you're saying, who's gonna who's gonna do all these jobs? Yes, let's employ a lot of Americans. Sounds great, but are we? That's also inflationary. Just throw that out there. And who? Yeah, I mean, yeah, who? It's going to be another issue: is do Americans want to return to kind of factory jobs, and how many of them will? 
but I think a lot of this is just tied up in this kind of weird politics. As I was in D.C. last week and I was talking to some people that work on the Hill and they were saying, you know, one of the things you have to remember is that a lot of the people making these, for a lot of the people making these political decisions, they don't really understand technology. And so they get this idea that something is, is a buzzword, right? They'll be like, okay, chips are important, national security. But they're not actually, they're either, they have backgrounds in, as in law usually, or maybe international relations. They don't really have backgrounds in technology. They don't really understand, you know, what goes into manufacturing or making these things or how they're even really used. They rely on sort of, you know, quick, they rely either on other experts or, or a kind of diffuse knowledge in the national security blob. But they're, they're not, this is not their native domain. And so they've latched on to this idea that we have this huge problem of chips for national security. They've latched on to this idea that AI is going to transform everything. I think I was laughing with you a little while ago. We saw uh, Eric Schmidt from Google gave this speech a few, you know, a few weeks ago in which he said, you know, he thought that AI controlled drones were really going to be the breakthrough technology in the Ukraine war. And he was surprised that, you know, Iran and Russia were able to adapt or deploy their own drones and adapt to our drones so quickly. But there's this, you know, there's this idea, I think, within national security circles that, you know, one technology is going to change everything. And nothing is going to be the same and that this is what we need to focus everything on instead of thinking of these as really complex and interrelated problems. It also sounds like some of these guys just haven't walked around like the halls of Carnegie or MIT for a second and seen how many like Russian or Iranian students might happen to be walking around. <laughs> There's a little bit of hubris, I agree, when it comes to some of these this stuff where we, where we think we find these golden bullet technologies and somehow we're the smartest in the world and we're going to discover it and no one else is going to figure it out or i mean i think most of us that are actually that like in the industry and do the work though that's not true and if like at the very least like i think either gone to school or collaborated or re read the work the research that these people have done and and are, and are aware that you know the, the technological gap i think that's part of what's to some extent backing a lot of this china technological xenophobia is that we kind of know that there's only so much we can keep saying that they can't do it because they're about to do it. And so we're trying to give ourselves a little headway. That, that's what I think to, to just keep control of the market. The problem is I think a lot of our recent actions are starting to expose exactly, particularly the way we've been abusing our, our financial, <laughs> our control of the international financial and banking sector, I think is just starting to make a lot of people nervous. A lot of nation states nervous about this current status quo. And, and, and will ultimately threaten, I, I think, our hegemony by making the strategy too bare. It's too obvious at this point to a lot of people what what's going on and, and how it runs in one direction. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just overestimating some of the recent behavior. I mean, there's this famous quote they asked. Osama bin Laden, supposedly somebody interviewed him after, you know, after the attacks on 9-11, they were like, why did you do it? And he said it was to make bare uh, the American empire in the Middle East, you know, to make it so that it's something that people could see. And in some ways, we responded by transforming what had been an informal empire into a formal occupation and something like Iraq. And that was, I mean, we guess we can debate what the impacts of that were, but, you know, in, in, in many ways, it made our presence visible and something that could be attacked. And I agree with you. I, I do worry that we are in some ways responding to a to a Chinese challenge, a complex challenge, by making bare our control both of financial markets and 
international IP. And I wonder yeah. if that is going to serve our long-term interests. Like I well, and, and, and international governance boards, things like the WTO and IMF, et cetera, and, and how we were just able to block things we don't like. We were just table it. It's like it's dead. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's funny. I spent the last week in the IMF uh, in D.C., and, you know, it is stark, right? I mean, as much as this is supposed to be a neutral international organization, it is located right here in our nation's capital, just a few blocks from the State Department. And the enormous amount of influence that we have over both the World Bank and the IMF and our ability to control, you know, who gets financing, how economies are restructured. And I think also our informational asymmetries. I think this is one of the things we've seen, you know, increasingly, the Chinese increasingly get anxious about is that, for decades, we've taken for granted that it was our international consultancies, our financial experts that would be able to go into all the countries around the world and sort of gather data and bring that data back. And I think one of the challenges is, you know, increasingly Russia is going uh, dark for us. China is limiting the amount of information coming out. And we may be able to slow them down, but I wonder at what risk of, you know, sort of fracturing this kind of complex ecosystem of high-tech development, financial relationships. A world that the United States made after World War II in many ways to suit our own interests. It seems like we are perhaps too casually disassembling. No, I mean, that's, we agree totally. And I guess that in the question is, why can't they tell us, what, what is this new thing that's, like, what is this shiny thing that we're, we're moving toward? you us like what is that like is that the <laughs> is that the goal like some sort of weird english speaking alliance that's going to rule the world i mean that's that's what i'll call it for now be, be kind it's just like what and what it's is strange it? i mean england is doing very badly or the united kingdom is doing very badly so it's at the same time as we're trying to move towards some kind of english speaking i mean if i were if i were australia i'd run it looks like everyone, everyone we make friends with is getting getting kneecapped right now, right? I mean, would you want to be our best here right now? It doesn't look like it's like the best thing for business as far as I can tell. Maybe I'm wrong, but... New Zealand yeah. was like, see you, wouldn't want to be you. Yeah, they saw it. They were like, nah, we're good. No, pass. Uh, and we're doubling down on militarization. That's the other weird thing. I mean, we can't just offer nuclear submarines to people, right? I mean, that can't be the future vision of a new American Especially century. ones they're not going to get for 25 years or whatever. Is <laughs> a kind of garrison state. Like, I wonder what our positive vision is. And I think that's like one of the things that, you know, right. I guess as, our, as we go on with this pod, we'll have to think about. But do we have a positive vision for the world? Or is it a, what are we calling it? Friendshoring? Is it simply a smaller world? Yeah, I mean, so, so my friend was telling me recently, it's a, it's, he's a competitive video gamer. And he was telling me that it's it's like a different being number one when you're number one, right? Because when you're number one, you have to try to not lose. It's different than not being number one, if that mm. makes any sense. When you're not number one, you're trying to win. You're trying to you have this other goal where you're trying to take over this. You're trying to do these other things. You're learning this skill to beat this guy, and you need to do this thing to beat this guy. It's like, but when you're number one, everyone's trying to beat you. And so you're like, your goal is just to not lose. And I'm worried that we, for some reason become caught in that mentality, which is not something that's actually, I think, been part of the American pathos until now. Mm. I mean, you think we're like an aging fighter or a little bit uh, drunk at the bar. Uh, we're like that, you know, aging champion. We're looking over the shoulders. We're getting a little anxious. We're, we're not sure spooked. there's someone there. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a little, we're a little spooked. spooked and we're starting fights with, with people that, because uh, China's a very weird enemy. It seems like they were very willing to 
take pole position, so to speak, and just be number two. They didn't really care. Didn't seem like they really had global ambitions in the same way that we do. But that wasn't sufficient. We didn't like that deal. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's the wrong read, and some people disagree with that. Um, and that's why we're taking such an aggressive position. But we seem intent on forcing them to spend a lot larger percentage of their GDP on military and to build their own technological garden, essentially. I mean, maybe it seems our very, strategy... It's very similar to what we did at the USSR, but this is also a different era, and they're light years ahead of where the USSR was comparatively. And the world is just a bigger world. There are just more options for the for the for their market. It's, I mean, their own market in itself is bigger than our market, three times bigger, so there's that. I think that might be our challenge, is that many of us, Many of the people in, in, you know, in the U.S. national security establishment remember what the U.S. did to the Soviet Union. And I think that is their analogy, right? They think that we can do, we can run the play again to the Chinese. So we want them to spend more money. We want them, we want them to spend more money on their military. We want them to have to build costly technology to replicate technology that already exists. And the idea is that maybe doing these things, which are inefficient, will eventually bring down Chinese rates of growth constrain Chinese power to make the Chinese threat more manageable to us. But I agree. The question, I guess, that nobody's really asking is, is there really a China threat? And what is the nature of that threat? Like, Yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a threat if you decide there's a threat. I don't think there was, you know, what we'd call a material threat. I don't think China had intentions of, like, invading and taking over the United States and overthrowing. That was never part of China's stated position. I mean, one could argue that technically that was part of the Soviet Union's position. It was global, the rise of global communism. You could, you could argue that. That's, that's an argument. I mean, I, I, can, I could hear that. China's never really said that, right? It's a completely different approach, even though I think it's a little bit of a, a hyperbolic take on the Soviet Union as well, obviously. China's never really taken that, that stance. I mean, I guess there was a moment in which we could imagine the Soviet Union was hoping to do national revolutions everywhere. Yeah, uh, I mean, they, they believed in the international. Correct. I mean, it's, it was a thing. There was an error for that. It's, it was a stated goal, too, if you look at, like, the founding of the Soviet Union, right? Now, whether or not you think this people that founded the Soviet Union, whether people that end up running it, you know, there's complicated <laughs> levels. I guess the question but, is, did the, do the Chinese want to do that? It doesn't seem like they have this idea that there's a China model for everyone to follow. I think the funny part that's what's going to happen here, and this is something I laugh about to myself, a chuck laugh and tear a little bit about this China situation is going to be very similar to what's going to happen in this Ukraine situation is we're going to end up after all this fussing and fighting making the same deal with them that they offered in the fucking beginning <laughs> and it looks like like for example in Ukraine it looks like we're going to end up having to give up the east and let them keep Crimea and maybe defining some DMZ or something right and then the West keeps Ukraine and doesn't join NATO, and then the band plays on. And I think... But do you, go ahead. But do you think for for Shiggles, we're then going to take the sanctions off of Russia? So that's, you know, I guess that's the part we didn't fully go into. I think that's what laid bare our issue with the global financial system, was the way we indiscriminately applied the sanctions to Russian sovereign wealth. I think it was... I've never seen anything like it. I mean, no one's in the world's ever seen anything like it. We were able to freeze the sovereign wealth of another nation that were not even held in our own banks, which was interesting. We were able to freeze dollars that weren't even in American banks, hmm. which is cra it's crazy. And I think it made a lot of nations take... Oh, also without declaring war on the nation. 
That's the other thing. We didn't declare war on them. We just were able to free their funds without declaring war. That's clearly an act of war. We were like, nah, because we don't want to declare war on Russia. It was a very interesting, aggressive act oh, um, nice. that presented a new, very powerful dimension that we have in war. I think we'll look back in history, and this will be the first stone thrown, right? The first major moment in in the acceleration of de-dollarization. I know some people are going to say, oh, de-dollarization already begun to occur. I think that it's particular deep petrodollarization is, is going to accelerate. Yeah, I think I think it is a turning point. And I guess, I mean, I guess in a way you raise an interesting question, which is, can we go back? Like, can we all simply agree? And maybe this is where the next election becomes so important. Like, is there going to be a chance to reset, to simply agree, you know, for the United States to simply turn and be like, hey, we were wiling, JK, we can all go back to the system as it was before. Or was this really a, a central turning point? accelerating new trends. And and I think, you know, I think maybe in the next part we can talk a little bit about the BRICS summit in South Africa and these real questions about around what's happening with de-dollarization. But I I think a lot of people have doubted de-dollarization because they thought it meant the imminent collapse of the US dollar. But I don't think that's what it means. No, 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 no. We just mean an acceleration of certain types of business deals being done in non-dollar denominated funds, whether it's currency, gold, crypto <laughs> or whatever it, it may be yeah and i think we see increasing demand for to sell commodities and non-dollar related things and to do bilateral trade and those kind of yeah things. and a decreasing use of the dollar as the means of uh storing sovereign funds yeah i mean i think that has been that has been the part that i think a lot of western analysts find hard to get around right because we're so heavily financialized I think a lot of Western analysts believe that there's no alternative to dollar-denominated financial assets. But I think you're right. I mean, I think we we haven't been in a system in which the method of payment is in national currencies. We haven't really seen so many transactions happen in other, uh, the unit of value, unit of account moves into things like gold and uh, cryptocurrencies rupees. or Bitcoin or rupees or... Uh, but I yeah. think, you know, the huge explosion in bilateral rupee trade is, I think, another example, right? Russia with India, the UAE increasingly with India settling their trade in rupees. Um, I remember settling. I actually made a joke like six months ago about the, the petro rupee. And like, here it is. It actually happened. Here we, here we go. Yeah. And the hallmark of currencies like the rupee have been their non-exchangeability and their non-ability to store wealth. But if they're able... Uh, to resurrect, I mean, I think a lot of us forget that there used to be a rupee zone in the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, countries like Kenya, UAE, I mean, it's not in the first half of the 20th century, they were all tied to the rupee. And so I think we, we just forget, like we have short memories. And the emergence of India as a huge swing state with increased economic and political autonomy, I think, is really going to change the nature of world order. I mean, right now we're talking about a bilateral world. But as I think you've said, maybe we're not moving to a bilateral world. Maybe we're moving to a multilateral world. And I don't know if American policymakers, you know, who are so focused on the Cold War are ready for multipolarity. No, I agree. I mean, the the rupee zone was, was quite big historically. People do forget. It, you know, it was all out throughout the Persian Gulf, Africa, Arabia. And I, I think you mentioned to me last week that, you know, you wouldn't be surprised if China, we end up doing this multipolar thing. If China's like, you can, that's your zone. Like we don't. You could have the Western Indian Ocean. 
Yeah, you can have Western in the ocean. We don't really care about that, to be honest. Which would kind of reinforce their control of the South China Sea. Because it would say, hey, it's, this is my backyard, this is your backyard. You stay over there, I'll stay over here. I mean, in many ways, we might. There could in be Americans, you get where, you go over there, out of here. Oh, yeah. Americans, you can keep the Atlantic. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe you can keep the Pacific all the way to, like, Japan. I don't know. I mean, I guess that's... Korea. I guess for the U.S., it's like... The Korea. They can't take Korea. That's the Korea. Yeah, yeah. But I guess that's where things get a little hazy for us. Because I think for the U.S., the U.S. sees its identity as a power in the Western Pacific, right? Like, we see, our, we see Korea, we see Japan, we see Taiwan, the Philippines as part of our core, our core sphere of influence. That's why the South China Sea seems to be so dangerous as a zone. But I agree. I mean, I think... There's this actually this wonderful book by Janet Abu Luga before European hegemony, and she she shows you you know the way in which China and India were were able before the 15th century were able to not really contest the Indian Ocean, right? I mean, after you pass the Straits of Malacca, this became kind of a Chinese zone from the Straits of Malacca, from the Malay regions all the way to East Africa. That was the clear area of Arab and Indian control. And in some ways, that's a natural settlement to be repeated. I think it's hard for us in the U.S. because I think we've imagined ourselves as a global power without any competitors, without peer challengers for so long. That could we accept the emergence of spheres of influence? Yeah, I mean, I and guess I think, the, the, the crucial like conflict in, in that region is going to be between, since you're talking about these other spheres of influence, we can't talk about our boys that have come up pretty big in the past 20, 30 years would be, the, I'd say, the, the UAE, right? Oh yeah, I think, and I'd argue their talk, yeah. their interest in in yeah in in the like you're saying the Western Indian Ocean and Southern Arabia is is probably going to most directly come into conflict with with the Indian interest. Yeah, I think I think UAE, Saudi, and India have some weird uh, competition, but I mean, right now I guess they have an alliance, but. Correct. You're right. Like, can they, how long can that alliance maintain itself? Or how, you know, how is it going to shake out? Who's going to get to be the top dog in this sort of three-way, uh, this sort of three-way split? And I think those are really unsettled questions. And then, and an interesting thing, I think this is a problem that's not on U.S. policymakers' agenda right now. Um, as we focus so much against China, I think we haven't really thought about what the emergence mm, of these three powers are in an area that... I think the U.S. takes for granted as its own backyard. You know, how will that play out? But, you know, I mean, I think that's, I think that's something that we need to keep our eyes on. I think this is a major issue uh, moving forward. Yeah, it's kind of the major cliffhanger, right? Like, there was just so much action there, obviously, in the early part of the 2000s. And we've, we've kind of put a pin in it, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, we've been trying to pivot, right? Our whole, our whole idea since Obama has been, what do we call it? The pivot to Asia. Completely. Even though this 100%. is Asia. You're like, this is Asia, guys. That doesn't really make sense as a phrase. But, you know, Asia for Americans, East Asia. We mean the far um, part of Asia, not the near part of Asia. Yeah, yeah. The... we want to leave near Asia and go to far Asia. Yeah, the Asia part, the Asia with the Asians, not the Asia with the, with the Arabs. You know. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think this is going to be a major issue. It's like, can you ever really leave your old friends behind? But I think we should talk about this. I think it should be our next our next pod if we should come back to this major question, this and the BRICS summit, you know, and really see like what we think, how this could play out. Because I think it's, and I think another question is what should we as African-Americans, you know, be doing about this? Like, is this an area that, you know, the reemergence of Africa, the continued importance of 
the Middle East. I mean, I think this is definitely something we need to talk about more, but I think it's definitely a missed opportunity. I think it's a connection that actually, for some reason, used to be stronger. I hear that. Well, let's talk about this more next time, next week. All right. Talk to you guys next week. Thank you guys for listening, and it was great being back. Can't wait to drop pods for the next week. Yeah, this-